You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. If you are listening to the podcast of this, it is located at RudolfSteiner.Podbean.com. Please consider becoming a patron. As well, there are two publishing houses, SteinerBooks.org in America and RudolfSteinerPress.com in England, who are the sole publishers of Steiner into English and have given me permission to do these recordings. Please consider patronizing them as well. You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. This is a reading of a cycle of lectures by Rudolf Steiner entitled A Modern Art of Education. This is Lecture 4, entitled Spirit's Relationship to the Body, given on August 8, 1923. Education during any era will accord with the prevailing civilization. The gifts of civilization as a whole can be passed from teacher to child. When I spoke of the Greeks, I said that they knew intimately the whole human being, which enabled them to educate in a way that is no longer possible. Their knowledge of the human being was derived entirely from the human body, which was, in a sense, transparent to them and revealed soul and spirit, insofar as their understanding allowed. We have seen how the Greeks educated the whole human being, beginning with the body, Anything that could not be drawn from the body, as music was, for example, was given to the student relatively late, only after physical education was completed, around twenty or even later. Today we have a different situation. The greatest illusions about human evolution are caused by the belief that ancient periods, when humanity was totally different, can be revived. Especially in our present time, however, it is wise to face reality with common sense. Once we understand history, we realize that just as the Greeks had to direct all of their education from the body, we must now direct ours from spirit. We must find ways to approach even physical education out of spirit, because, whether we like it or not, humanity has come to the point where we must take hold of the spirit as such. We must win spirit as our human essence through human effort. And right when we develop the desire to educate according to the needs of our time, we experience how little progress our civilization has made in becoming imbued with spirit. When a longing arises to make spirit increasingly a human possession, Excuse me, then a longing arises to make spirit increasingly a human possession. Where do we find, at a relatively high level, the idea of modern humanity possessing spirit? Don't be shocked if I describe this with with examples from the height of modern culture. What appears at the top only symbolically and within the limits of the culture really prevails in civilization as a whole. In our endeavor to understand spirit, we have only today reached the stage of apprehending spirit conceptually through thinking. Perhaps the best way to understand human thinking today in its greatest scope is to observe modern thought as it appears, say, in John Stuart Mill or in Herbert Spencer. Footnote John Stuart Mill, 1806-1873 to English empiricist philosopher and social reformer, 
He was leader of the Benthamite Utilitarian Movement and helped form the Utilitarian Society. His essay on liberty is his most popular work. Herbert Spencer, 1820-1903, wrote title Education, 1861. End of footnote. <laughs> I ask you not to be shocked by the fact that I point to the highest level of culture because while Mill and Spencer appear to be merely outstanding symptoms, in reality those symptoms dominate every sphere and represent the thinking of our civilization. Thus, when we inquire into how people know the spirit from which they must educate, just as the Greek educated the body, we have to say that people know the spirit just as Mill or Spencer knew it. Now, how did they know spirit? Let us consider for a moment the idea people have today when they speak of spirit. I do not mean that absolutely vague image that hovers somewhere above the clouds, the one given to us by tradition. There is no real experience connected with that. We can speak only of the spirit possessed by humanity when we observe how people deal with this spirit, how it works, and what we do with it. We have to look at the way people apply spirit, not what they have to say about it in abstract terms. Spirit in our present civilization is the spirit that John Stuart Mill and Herbert Spencer have already worked into their philosophies. There it is, and that is where we must look for it. Now let us consider this, in quotes, thought-out spirit, because in our time spirit is primarily something thought, a spirit capable, perhaps, of thinking philosophically. But compared to the real essence perceived by the Greeks when they spoke of humanity or anthropos, we move spiritually in a distilled element when we think. It is extremely rarefied. When we spoke of humanity, the Greeks always had a physical image of the person before them, and this physical human also revealed soul and spirit. This person was in a specific place and time, limited by the boundary of skin. Those who trained a person in a Greek gymnasium covered with the skin with oil to emphasize that boundary. One was a wholly concrete entity, existing somewhere in time and formed in one way or another. And now, consider our idea of spirit today. Where is it? What is its form? It is vague. There is no how or when and no definite form or image. People try to build some sort of image, but look, for instance, at John Stuart Mill's idea of imagery. We think in ideas, which are the inner images of words. And Mill said that when a person thinks, one idea is followed by a second and again a third. As one idea links to a second, third, and fourth, the ideas associate themselves. Modern psychology speaks in many and various ways about those associated ideas, calling them the real inner essence of spiritual life. What kind of feeling and perception should we have in relation to our own being if this association of ideas were truly what we have as spirit? We stand in the world. Ideas begin to move. 
and they associate themselves. Then we look back at ourselves and our true nature as spirit in these associated ideas. This leads to an awareness of self that is no different than looking at ourselves in a mirror and seeing a skeleton, a dead skeleton. Think of the shock of looking in a mirror and seeing a skeleton. In one skeleton the bones are associated with one another. They are held together by external means, fixed to one another, according to mechanical principles. In our idea of spirit, therefore, we merely imitate mechanics. To those who have a full sense of humanity and feel healthy in a human sense, this idea of spirit is like looking in a mirror and seeing one's spirit made up of bones, because the association psychology described in books sees as though in a mirror. We may always have this pleasure, not a, in a physical sense, of course, for it arises whenever we compare our modern situation with that of the Greeks. Spiritually, we have this experience repeatedly. We seek out philosophers, thinking they might be able to give us self-knowledge, but they give us their books as a mirror in which we see ourselves as the skeletons of associated ideas. This is what takes hold of us today when we try to think in a practical way about education and attempt to approach it from the perspective of our culture. We get no indication of what education ought to be. Instead, we are shown how to find a pile of bones and how to piece them together into a skeleton. This is how the typical person feels today. People long for a new education, and everywhere they ask how to educate. But where can we turn? We must turn to the general form of civilization Excuse me, we must turn to the general form civilization has taken, and it shows us that we can build up only a skeleton. Now, a, quote, strong feeling for civilization, close quote, must take hold of the human being. If our feeling is healthy, we must feel imbued with the intellectual nature of modern thinking and ideas. And this is what confuses people today. We would like to think that the mirror reveals something sublime and perfect. We would like to be able to make something of it. Above all, we would like to be able to use it in education. But we cannot. We cannot use this to educate. So, if we want to have enough enthusiasm as teachers, we must first learn to perceive dead in our intellectualistic culture because a skeleton is dead. If we saturate ourselves with the knowledge that our thinking is dead, we quickly discover that all death arises from the living. If you were to find a corpse, you would not take it as the original being. You cannot think of a corpse as a person unless you have no concept of a human being. If, however, you have an idea of what a human being is, you know that a corpse is merely what's been left behind. The nature of the corpse leads you to conclude that a human being was once present. If you recognize the thinking that people cultivate today as being a dead corpse, you can also relate it to something alive. Moreover, you begin to have an inner urge to make thinking come to life again and to revitalize our whole civilization. 
it then becomes possible for something practical to emerge from modern civilization, something that can reach living human beings, not merely a skeleton, just as the Greeks reached the living human in their education. Let us not underestimate the importance of the feelings a teacher must have from the beginning. The teachers at our Waldorf school were initially given a seminar. It was not merely a matter of following the points of a given program. It imparted a definite soul condition, reconnecting what today's culture values as its heritage with our innermost being. Thus dead thinking comes to life. Disengaged thinking becomes full of character. Artificial thinking begins to be penetrated by one's whole being, becoming truly human. First of all, then, thoughts must become truly alive in a teacher. When a thing lives, something comes of this life. A human being is embodied in space and time, has spirit, soul, and body. A definite form and boundary and does not really think, we also feel and will. When a thought is communicated to us, that thought is the seed of a feeling and an impulse of volition. It becomes complete. The ideal of modern thinking is what people call, in quotes, objective thinking, which is as motionless as possible and intended to be an undisturbed reflection of the outer world, a mere handmaiden of experience. Such thinking contains no force, and no impulse of feeling or will arises from it. The Greeks began with the physical human standing there before them. We must begin with the human ideal. Everyone feels the truth of this. But such an ideal must not be only a theory. It must be alive and contain the force of feeling and volition. When we think about changing education, the first thing we need to do is to get beyond abstract theoretical ideals. When we take these into our souls, they cannot become inner feeling and volition or bring human qualities into the physical body. Thoughts today do not become gestures but they must become so again. It is not enough for children to take in these thoughts passively. They must guide them as they go out into the world as unified human beings, for we must again educate unified human beings, whose physical education is a continuation of what we gave them in the classroom. People do not think like this now. Their idea of what to give in school is so much intellectual information, something needed. But it fatigues and stresses children, perhaps even causes nervous problems. When people feel that something else is needed, physical exercises are given as an, in quote, extra. So today we have two very separate branches, intellectual education and physical education, and one does not promote the other. And we really have two human beings, one vague and hypothetical, and one real, whom we do not understand, as the Greeks did. We, in quotes, squint when we look at a person, because there appear to be two in front of us. We must learn again to see straight, to see people as unified whole human beings. This is most important in education. 
What we must do, therefore, is to move beyond the more or less theoretical facts of education as it exists today, moving toward an education that is practical in the true sense of the word. From what I have said it follows that much depends on how we return spirit, which we grasp only in an intellectual way, to the human being, so that this vague spirit with which we observe people will become human. We must learn to see people in spirit as the Greeks saw people in the body. Let me give you an example to describe how through spirit we can begin to understand the human being right down into the body. In discussing how spirit may be connected with a specific human organ, I will choose the most striking example, but only temporarily. These matters will become clearer in the following lectures. Let me show you a process that the Greeks too considered deeply symbolic and extraordinarily significant in a child's development, the change of teeth. This change, in Greece, indicated the age at which a child entered public education. Try to picture the relationship between spirit and human teeth. It will seem odd, perhaps, that when discussing people as spiritual beings, I begin by speaking of the teeth. Nevertheless, it seems strange only because, as a result of modern culture, people may, for example, be familiar with the form of a tiny germ when they look through the microscope, but they know very little about what lies before them. It is recognized that teeth are needed for eating. This is the first striking thing about them. It is also known that they are needed for speech. Certain sounds are related to the teeth. Air flows in a particular way from the lungs and larynx and out through the palate and lips, and certain consonant sounds require the teeth. We know that our teeth serve a useful purpose when eating or speaking. A truly spiritual understanding of the human being shows us something else as well. If you are able to study the human being, as I described in the previous lecture, it will occur to you that a child develops teeth not only for eating and speaking, but also for another purpose. As strange as it sounds, a child develops teeth for the purpose of thinking. Modern science is unaware that our teeth are the most important of all our organs of thought, in small children, before the change of teeth, the physical teeth, as such, are the most important organ of thought. Children, through their interaction with the environment, spontaneously find their way into thinking. As thinking rises from the dim life of sleep and dreams of infancy, the whole process is related to the teeth pressing through in the head. The forces that press the teeth out of the jaw are also the inner soul forces that now bring thinking to the surface from the unformed sleep and dreams of childhood. The child learns to think with the same intensity as they used to teethe. So, how do children learn to think? They learn to think because they are imitative beings and as such are completely surrendered to the world around them. At the very core of their being, they imitate events in their surroundings, including what happens because of the impulses of thinking. And then, to the same degree that thought arises in a child, the teeth emerge. In effect, the force that appears in the soul as thinking 
is also within these teeth. Let us now follow childhood development further. Around the seventh year, children go through the change of teeth and the second teeth emerge. I see that this force that produces the first and second teeth was present in the child's whole organism, but manifests strongest in the head. The second teeth come only once. The forces that drive those teeth out of the child's organism do not work again as physical forces during earthly life. They become soul and spirit powers. They enliven the soul's inner being. When we observe children around the seventh to fourteenth years with particular attention to soul qualities, we find that those soul qualities between the seventh and fourteenth years, especially thinking, were organic forces until the seventh year. They were active in the physical organism, culminating as a physical force that pushed out the teeth and finally becoming soul activity. These things can, of course, be truly observed only when we press forward to the mode of cognition I described previously as the first stage of exact clairvoyance, imaginative knowledge. The abstract intellectual knowledge of the human being that is common today does not lead to this other knowledge. Thought must come to life from within and become imaginative so that through thought as such one can really understand. Nothing can be truly understood through intellectual thinking. Its objects all remain external. One looks at them and forms mental images of what is seen. But thinking can be reinforced inwardly and made active. Then imaginative pictures fill the soul, replacing abstract intellectuality. At the first stage of exact clairvoyance, as I described it, one can perceive how besides the forces of the physical body, a suprasensory body is working in us, if you will forgive the paradoxical expression. This is the first suprasensory member of the human being. Now, what are the characteristics of the physical body? It can be weighed, it tends in the direction of gravity, this is its outstanding characteristic. If, through imagination, we become aware of the suprasensory body, which I call the ether body or body of formative forces, we find that it cannot be weighed. It weighs nothing. On the contrary, it tends away from the earth in every direction toward cosmic space. It contains forces opposed to gravity and works perpetually against gravity. Ordinary physical knowledge teaches us about the physical body. Likewise, imaginative cognition, the first stage of precise clairvoyance, teaches us about the ether body, which is always striving away from earthly gravity. Just as we gradually learn to relate the physical body to its environment, we also learn to relate the ether body to its environment. When studying the physical body, we look out into nature for the substances of its composition. We realize that everything within us that is subject to gravity, our weight, has weight in outer nature as well. It enters us when we assimilate nourishment. Thus we gain a natural concept of the human organism, insofar as the organism is physical. 
Similarly, through imagination, we gain a concept of the relationship between our self-enclosed ether body and the surrounding world. In spring, the force that drives the plants out of the soil, toward the cosmos in all directions and against gravity, the force that organizes plants brings them into relation to the upward-tending stream of light and works in the chemistry of the plant as it strives upward. All this is related to the ether body. Just as foods like salt, cabbage, turnips and meat are related to the physical body, Thus, in the first stage of exact clairvoyance, this thinking that forms a unity and is self-sufficient is related to the ether body. Until the change of teeth, the ether body is intimately connected to the physical body. It organizes the physical body from within and is the force that pushes the teeth outward. Once the second teeth arrive, the part of the ether body that pushes the teeth out has finished its purpose in the physical body and its activity is freed from it. With the change of teeth, these etheric forces are freed. And it is with these forces that we begin to think freely from the seventh year on. The force of the teeth becomes less physical than it was while the teeth acted as the organs of thought. It is now an etheric force. This same force that that produced the teeth now works in the ether body and thinks. When we experience ourselves as thinking beings and feel that thinking arises in the head, many people do not have this experience unless thinking has caused a headache, true knowledge shows us that the force we use to think with is the same as that once contained in the teeth. Thus our knowledge brings us close to the unity of the human being. We again learn how the physical connects with the soul. We know that children first think with the forces of the teeth. And this is why teething troubles are so connected inwardly with the whole life of a child. Consider all that occurs as a child is teething. All those troubles arise from the process of teething because of its connection to thinking. It is intimately connected with the innermost spirituality of a child. The formative forces of the teeth are liberated and become the independent forces of human thinking. If we have the necessary gift of observation, we can see that process of gaining independence. We can see how along with the change of teeth thinking frees itself from the body. And then, what happens? To begin with, the teeth come to the aid of speech. The teeth, which initially had the independent task of growth according to the forces of thought, are now forced down a stage, so to speak. Thinking no longer takes place in the physical body, but in the ether body. So it descends one stage. This was happening during the first seven years as well, since the whole process is sequential, merely culminating with the second teeth. Then, when thinking seeks expression in speech, the teeth become helpers of thought. So, we look at a human being and we see the head. In the head, the formative forces of the teeth 
free themselves and become the force of thinking. Then, pressed down, as it were, into speech, we have all the processes for which the teeth are no longer directly responsible, because the ether body now assumes the responsibility and the teeth come to the aid of speech. Here their relationship to thinking is still obvious. Once we understand how dental sounds find their way into the process of thinking, we see the task performed by the teeth, how we use the teeth to make the sounds of d or t and bring the specific thought element into speech. I have shown through this example of the teeth, which may seem a bit exaggerated, how we can understand a human being through the spirit. If we proceed in this way, thinking gradually ceases to be an abstract wandering of associated ideas and connects with the human being. We no longer see merely the physical functions in a human being, such as chewing with the teeth or the movements that produce the dental sounds of speech. Instead, we see the teeth as an outer imagination in nature of the process of thinking. Thinking, quote, flashes forth, close quote, and reveals itself through the teeth, and there in the teeth is the outer appearance of thinking. When we really come to understand the teeth, thought that is otherwise abstract and vague becomes a definite image. We see how thought works in the head where the teeth lie, and how thought develops from the first to the second teeth. Again, the whole process assumes formative boundaries. A real image of the spirit begins to arise in nature itself. Spirit is again creative. We need more than anthropology, which studies human beings in a completely external way and associates human elements just as various properties of ideas are associated. What we need is the kind of thinking that is unafraid to press on toward the inner being, unafraid to speak of how spirit functions in the teeth. This is indeed what we need, because then we penetrate the human being through the spirit, and something artistic arises. Thinking that is abstract, theoretical, and impractical merely develops a person with a skeletal thinking and must be led into the imaginal. Theoretical observation becomes artistic perception and creativity. One must form an image of the teeth when trying to perceive the spirit working within. The artistic element then begins to be the guide to the first stage of exact clairvoyance, that of imagination. This is where we begin to understand the true human being. Otherwise a human being is merely an abstraction in our thinking. When it comes to education, we find ourselves confronted by real human beings. They stand there before us. But there is an abyss between us, because we are there with our abstract spirit and we must cross that abyss. First we must know how we can cross it. Our knowledge of human beings today is limited to being able to put on a cap. We do not know how to put spirit into the whole human being and we must learn to do this, how to clothe human beings spiritually just as we learned how to clothe ourselves externally. We must learn to treat spirit as we treat the outer garments. 
When we approach people in this way, we achieve a living educational method. The period of life beginning at around seven is significant because of all the facts I described. There is another point in earthly life that is equally significant because of the symptoms that arise in life. These seven-year periods are approximate, of course, occurring earlier or later in different people. Around fifteen, when puberty is reached, is another time of extraordinary importance in earthly existence. But the emergence of sexual life is only the most outer indication of a complete inner transformation taking place between seven and fourteen. We have to look at the formative forces of the teeth in the head for the physical origin of thinking, which frees itself at around seven to become a soul function. Similarly, we must look for the activity of the second soul force, feeling, in other parts of the human organism. Feeling releases itself from the physical constitution much later than does thinking. Between seven and fourteen, a child's feeling life is still inwardly connected to the physical organism. Thinking has been freed, but feeling is still inwardly connected to the body. All the feelings of joy, sorrow and pain that a child expresses maintain a strong physical correlation with organic secretions and with the acceleration or slowing of a child's breathing. If our perception is sharp enough, when the outer symptoms of the change appear, we can see in these phenomena the great transformation taking place in the feelings. Just as the appearance of the second teeth indicates one climax of growth, speech expresses the end of the next phase, when feeling is gradually released from its connection with the body to become a soul function. We see this most clearly in boys with the change of voice. The head reveals the change that lifts thinking out of the physical organism, and the breathing system, the seat of organic rhythmic activity, expresses the liberation of feeling which detaches itself from the physical organism and becomes an independent function of soul. We know how this is expressed in a boy. The larynx changes and the voice becomes deeper. In girls, different phenomena appear in physical development, but this is only external. Anyone who has reached the first stage of exact clairvoyance, imaginative perception, knows because it is perceived. The larynx of a boy transforms at about fourteen. The same thing happens in girls to the ether body. The change withdraws to the ether body of the female and assumes a form exactly like the physical body of the male. And the ether body of a boy of fourteen assumes a form resembling the physical body of a female. However extraordinary it may seem, to a mode of cognition that clings to the physical, it is nevertheless true that from this very important phase onward a man carries etherically a woman, and the woman carries etherically a man. This is expressed in different ways in males and females. If one goes beyond imagination and reaches the second stage of exact clairvoyance, described in greater detail in my books, one attains inspiration, perception of independent spirit, 
no longer connected to the physical body. One then becomes aware how, during this important period, around 14 and 15, the third human member reaches a state of independence. In my books I have called this third aspect the astral body, according to an older tradition. Footnote. You must not be shocked by such expressions. We have to use words for everything. Rudolf Steiner, end of footnote. This astral body is more essentially soul than is the ether body. Indeed, the astral body is soul and spirit. It is the third member and second suprasensory member of the human being. This astral body works through the physical organism until the fourteenth or fifteenth year, when it becomes independent. Thus a very significant task falls to teachers to help this development toward independence of soul and spirit hidden in the depths of the organism before the age of seven or eight. Gradually, because the process is successive, it frees itself. We must assist this gradual process of detachment when we teach children between the ages of seven and fourteen. Then, if we have gained the knowledge I have spoken of, we notice how a child's speech changes. Today's crude science, if I may call it so, is concerned merely with the grosser human soul qualities, speaking of the other phenomena as secondary sexual characteristics. To spiritual observation, however, these secondary phenomena are primary, and vice versa. These metamorphoses, as well as the way feeling withdraws from the organs of speech, are extremely significant. As teachers, it is our wonderful task, one that inspires our innermost being, to gradually release speech from the bodily constitution. It's wonderful to see in a child of seven the natural, spontaneous movements of the lips, which come from organic activity. When a seven-year-old speaks labial sounds, it is different from the way a child of fourteen or fifteen says them. For a seven-year-old the labial sounds are organic. The circulation of the fluids involuntarily shoots into the lips. When a child reaches around thirteen, this organic activity is transferred into the organism proper, and the soul activity of feeling must emerge and move the lips voluntarily with the expression of feelings in speech. The hardened thought element of speech is manifested in teeth, in the teeth, and the soft, loving element of feeling manifested in the lips. It is the labial sounds that give warmth and loving sympathy to speech. This marvelous transition from the organic activity of the lips to the activity brought into play by the soul, this development of the lips in human organic and psychological nature, is something a teacher can accompany, and thus a wonderful atmosphere can be brought into the school. Just as we see the suprasensory etheric element that permeates the body emerging in the seventh year as independent thinking power. Similarly, we see the element of independent soul and spirit emerging at the age of fourteen or fifteen. As teachers, we help bring the soul and spirit to birth. What Socrates meant is seen at a higher level. 
In, following, in the following lectures I will explain the new elements that appear in walking and movement when a person reaches approximately 21 years of age, the third period of life. It is enough today that we saw how thinking frees itself from organic activity and how feeling frees itself from organic activity until 14 or 15. And we saw how this gives us insight into human development and how an otherwise merely abstract mode of thinking can become an image or imagination. We have also seen how human speech appears in its true form as soul and spirit when a person reaches 14 or 15. We can say, therefore, that if we wish to reach a person in a living way and bring vital spirit to humankind, we must enter the artistic. And if we wish to bring the feeling spirit to a human being, we must go about this not only artistically, but also with a religious feeling, which alone can penetrate the reality of spirit. Education between 7 and 14, therefore, can be carried on in a truly human sense only if it is done within a religious atmosphere, becoming almost a sacramental office, not in a sentimental sense, but in a truly human sense. So we see that whatever we do returns to us when we bring life and soul to our otherwise abstract thinking, which arises from the mere association of ideas. We see how one finds the way to an artistic understanding of humanity and to a sense of the human within the religious life. Art and religion are thus united with education. Thus the way becomes clear from the matter of the student to that of the teacher when we realize that education should become knowledge so practical, so clear and so living that teachers cannot become true educators of young people unless they are inwardly able to become truly artistic and religious. The end of Lecture 4